Welcome to the Center in the City podcast. I'm your host, Wade Brill, and during this series, I'll be interviewing various thought leaders, wellness experts, and humans on how they practice sustainable self-care and mindfulness. We'll get real and raw, talk about the light and the shadow side of self-care and mindfulness, and how we can actually stay centered amid the chaos and the hustle and bustle of our modern day world. So settle in and get centered. This podcast episode is brought to you by Centered in the City, a virtual on-demand self-care and mindfulness platform with over a hundred different meditations, journaling prompts, nourishing recipes, and Pilates flows, all designed to support you feeling calm, focused, and energized as you live your life in this modern day world. For more information, head on over to centeredinthecity.org and claim your seven-day free trial. Notice how much better you will feel by having a consistent practice to support you staying centered. Hi, my name is Jessica, and I wanted to drop a little audio for Wade's podcast to talk about my experience with Forum Centered in the City. Uh, So far, my experience has been nothing but positive. It's full of quality content. It's really well-rounded. It has really good meditations healthy recipes, Pilates, even journal prompts. And then she also does a monthly connection call that kind of takes you deeper into topics and gives you some actionable items if you want to take it further. But one thing I really like about the monthly calls is it's at your own pace. It's recorded. So if you can't make the call, you can just watch it whenever you can get time. The newsletters that she sends out in the email are minimal. I think they're only once a week, uh, but they're really helpful and they highlight things that are new on the platform. So I really love that. In general, I just love knowing that I have a central space to go to to cherry pick what I am feeling up for or feeling like I need to, you know, create for for myself, whether it's uh, some movement in my body or a guided meditation to kind of settle my mind and get me started or journal prompts if I'm feeling like I need some help with direction. But overall, it's just a really good resource for so many things. And it's nice to know that I have one central location to pick from and I don't have to worry about a bunch of different subscriptions or where I go for what and things like that. So yeah, if you haven't given it a try, I highly recommend it. Thanks, Jessica, for sharing your words and your experience with Centered in the City. Welcome back to the Center in the City podcast. I am so excited for today's episode where I get to interview Diana Winston on the Center in the City podcast. This is a dream come true. Diana, I've known her from afar since 2014, and she was my main meditation teacher in my certification program to become a mindfulness teacher and facilitator. And I'm honored to have her on the podcast. Diana offers so much wisdom today around the practice of compassion for others and for self. A little bit about Diana is that she is the Director of Mindful Education at UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center, also known as MARC. She is the author of many books, including The Little Book of Being, She co-authored Fully Present, The Science, Art, and Practice of Mindfulness. She has taught mindfulness for health and well-being since 1999. 
and continues to work with a variety of groups, including healthcare workers, universities, businesses, non-for-profits, and schools. Diana was a former Buddhist nun, and you can experience her teachings on UCLA's Mindful app, on Waking Up, and on 10% Happier's app. So let's settle in to today's episode, and let's get centered. Diana, welcome to the Sentency Podcast. Thanks for having me. I am so honored to have you on the show, and it feels just—I don't know—my my cheeks hurt my from smiling just having you here. <laughs> I want to begin with this question I've been asking uh, most of my guests. Of, you know, tell us about a time when you weren't centered and how you supported yourself getting recentered. Mm, okay. Um, do you want something like recent or whatever any... comes, whatever feels real and raw to you or present? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll think about like recently I just had, I was just telling you my relatives were visiting. And so that means my brother, his wife and two kids. So I have three young teenagers in my house and it's complete chaos the, for the eight days that they were here. And um, there was this one moment where, you know, getting motivating them to do anything is very, very hard. And we were trying to uh, trying to go out in one group, but one faction was going to go shopping and the other faction was going to the dog park. And the next thing I know, everybody's complaining. I don't want to go with him. If he goes to the dog park, then I'm going to the I'm going to. I'm not going, I'm not, well, if she's not going, I'm not going. So the kids, like all of them just completely like melted down. And then the parents are starting to freak out and going, well, we have to get that one to do it. And I'm, you know, also a parent doing the same thing <laughs> going, come on, it's okay. We'll just, why don't trying to bribe, trying to all this stuff. And it was intractable and the kids were intractable. Everybody was mad. And I just suddenly like paused for a moment. I was like, if we can't even, I can't even get my family to do anything. Like how do countries do anything? How do people make decisions and go and do? And I just started laughing and I just took a pause and I took a breath and I just thought, so this is it. This is what's happening. This is life right now. There's no, there's no problem whether we go dog park or shopping or anything. And I sort of sat back and just began to practice kind of like a like an open awareness meditation practice where just allowing things to be as they were. And one kid was on the couch, like, like, I don't know what she was doing, like hiding her body in the couch. And the other was yelling at them. And it was all part of this like wide open, spacious, um, joyful, funny show. And of course, at some point they made a decision and things happened. And it didn't really matter how hard I was trying to control it. And I felt I actually felt great and was laughing and was pretty relaxed. Mm. I love that you highlight the laughter portion of it because it sounded like that was a kind of snapped you out of the place of the con needing to control and the chaos that was occurring and just create some perspective and then spaciousness to kind of just allow things to unfold on their own timing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. Oh, how we could bring more of that into all of our lives. I just I know. <laughs> practice right? moment to moment, just the intention, the awareness that even that practice is out there, I think is huge, right? That That's a choice that we can step into. I got to see you a few weeks ago at the 
Mindfulness and Compassion Global Summit in LA. And you gave a talk around compassion for self and others that I'd love to just share a little bit more with the Center in the City community and also kind of go where you weren't able to go during your, your presentation. Can we begin with just what is compassion? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of ways to think about compassion, but it's really the opening of the heart and movement of the heart towards alleviating suffering. So it's like we meet suffering and then there's a response in our being and it can be sometimes we meet suffering and the response is aversion or pity or, you know, putting our head in the sand. But sometimes we connect or meet suffering in some way and our heart responds and it's like, oh, how can I help? This is this feeling of compassion. It's like love connecting with suffering. Um, it's also, you know, other ways I, I think I was talking about it then was like kind of do unto others as you would have others do unto you, the golden rule and, and there are different variations, but that's the basics of compassion. It's so interesting that the opposite of compassion, would you say the opposite of compassion is aversion? Probably, or, or um, like not doing anything, like complete, I mean, it could, I guess hostility would probably be like the full on hostility, hatred would be the opposite. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so why is it so hard for us to practice self-compassion and compassion for others? Mm. You know, I think there are different reasons, and I think the two of them are really different in in some ways. Obviously, it's the same mechanism, except the the compassion for self involves like a it's the same thing. How do I meet my own suffering? Do I meet my own suffering with shame, embarrassment, resistance, or do I meet it with like love and openness? And and you know, so with with it, so many people who struggle with not having self compassion, who have self hatred, self judgment. I mean, this is like epidemic proportion. All of us. Yeah, everybody, <laughs> right? Or a portion, yeah. I, I like to collect quotes. I forget if I was saying this, but I, I have like Meryl Streep saying, I can't act. I'm a terrible actor. You know, I mean, it's it, when Meryl Streep thinks she can't act, you know, we're in trouble, right? So, so there's a, there are these extremes of self-hatred and self-judgment in most people. And so because of many things, conditioning, family, messages, trauma, you know, I mean, there's so many reasons why we have this. It becomes like a like a default setting, right? Our conditioning is I'm not good enough. I'm going to fail. No one likes me, whatever. And that just sort of like it becomes these identities that we kind of glom onto. So when you start to say, okay, be compassionate towards yourself, people's response is not like, oh, yeah, that was okay. I, I messed up. Oh, well, people's response is I'm a jerk. You know, I'm, I'm a failure. And and so that's that's sort of just like, I mean, briefly one of the re and also I think people think if they're very compassionate to themselves and they won't improve you know I won't yes. right like I'm not gonna I'll just sit around and let myself be lazy or let myself not work or let myself you know, I mean there are lots of ideas around that the obstacles to compassion to others I think are is a little bit different because I think it's less about our conditioning and more about well, it's also conditioning. <laughs> Let me, I take that back. But it's like we, um, when outer suffering is something that in some cases we can avoid, 
we can we don't have to face a lot of external suffering unless you're forced to like if you're living in ukraine you cannot get away from it if you're living in suburban us you might you might have suffering in your family but you may not it may not be impacting you in that kind of way so it's easy to just shut down ignore not pay attention to um and it's hard you know it it like it, it it's really hard to stay with an open heart in the face of suffering. So I guess it's really, maybe it is the same the more I think about it. I want to circle back to what you said about practicing self-compassion for a moment, because I think you hit the nail on the head here of some people I think have this fear. If I practice self-compassion, then I won't be motivated to do more. And I kind of think of like that inner sergeant, like yelling at people, like, you know, do 50 more push-ups type of thing that they find that more motivating than, you know, hey, like, what does your body want to do right now? <laughs> or do you want to do five more push-ups? Or what does it look like to look, you know, have a six more push-up here? Why do you think our minds are from like a neurological perspective, what's happening that we're so wired to lean more to the critical voice? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot going on. There's um, the negativity bias, bias, right? The scientists talk about the negativity bias, where we'll, we'll see the negative and we'll somehow miss the positive. And they say it's like Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive, right? Our, our brain somehow can't take that in. And it's really, it's so interesting because, you know, I could see myself sometimes like I'm teaching a class and there's hundreds of people in the audience and everybody's smiling and there's like one person in the third row frowning and, you know, looking at their phone and I'm like, oh, that person, what's wrong? What am I doing wrong? You know, it's like, and, and this, it's just, this is what our minds do. We go towards that that um, negativity. Um, so yeah, it's not easy. And most of us, I mean, some of us have had conditioning around like parents who were very loving parents, but most of us probably had not great models around it. And we've internalized that quite a bit. And then there's been this whole movement for self-esteem, like how do we build kids' self-esteem? And it's it's it didn't really work because <laughs> they tried like, let's just tell the kids they're great at everything. Okay, well, wonderful, you just pooped, great. Okay, great job, great job. Um, and then kids, kids feel it, like they know if it's not real and they also know if like, if suddenly they, they need all their external worth mirrored to them. Right now, I don't feel good unless somebody's telling me great job. So that's not self-compassion. That's not that's supposedly self-esteem, but it's not. You know, the science now shows that that is a bit of a failure. Um, but self-compassion instead is the idea that we're okay even with our failings. It's not like we have to be these idealized or perfect human beings, and we don't have to do everything right. And we're not lazy. It's not about you know letting us just be late. It's just letting us be who we are and love and have compassion for ourselves no matter what we do no matter whether we screw up or we do it well that we're we're inherently worthy that's that's where self-compassion is is anyway that's what it's about yeah i loved when you were giving your talk at the conference that you specifically added that portion in your definition of, of self-compassion was just the recognizing of inner goodness and how you know, I think a lot of us continually feed this thought loop that we're not good enough 
and of course social media plays a role in that and feedback of what you're referring to feedback in our environment plays a role with that and i think a lot of millennials you know grew up with parents that were like oh good job with everything so i think we are conditioned to have that external feedback be very important for our sense of self and but the innate goodness that we're not broken nothing's wrong with us nothing needs to be fixed i think can just be a huge shift of acceptance like a a floodgate of of self-love yes and it's not always easy to get to because oftentimes we have to work our way through all of the voices and find tools and practices and you know all of the things that you offer people are their their doorways into more self-acceptance more self-kindness and working with it. So, so when we talk about self-compassion, and I originally drew from the work of Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, University of Texas researcher and psychotherapist, Chris Germer, who developed the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. But I, and I added that piece that you mentioned because they say self-compassion is this combination of mindfulness, um, kindness, and I, I kind of define it as self-directed kindness, right? How do we actually deliberately deliver kindness to ourselves through practices, and then a recognition of our shared humanity. And then this third, so so we've got to work on all those fronts. And then this other piece of that I've, I, I think about a lot is like, how do we fundamentally, we're not flawed, right? This is not who we are. This is at least certainly not in mine and many other people's opinion, but we we certainly feel that way. <laughs> and how do we open to the possibility that our own nature is good and is worthy? And that takes a lot, a lot of letting go of old stories and opening to new ones. And But it's absolutely doable. And I've seen it over and over that students change. Like they really, meditation students that I work with, they change and they get it. Mm-hmm. Oh. I mean, I'm one of them. I Self-compassion practice was not part of my original meditation and mindfulness practice. And then I started to realize I get to help heal myself. I can choose to be a continued enemy to myself, but why? I'm just creating more struggle and pain and, and negative energy inside my body. And so when I was going through chemotherapy was this transformation point for myself of wow I can help heal my my cells and my inner self by being kind by being compassionate and it was such a shift that then allowed me to also have more love and appreciation for the nurses for the people in my environment which I think is so important always but especially in the climate that we're living in right now You know, and one of the things that you start to talk about around just compassion in general, this ability to face suffering with an open heart, you know, how people are at such capacity right now of like, oh my God, if I open my heart more, or if I pay attention to all the suffering that is happening in Ethiopia, in Ukraine, in United States, everywhere, like it feels too much for their system. How would you recommend us using compassion as we engage with the news or as we stay awake and stay present to everything? Yeah, it's um, 
I just want to go back to one thing you said, and then I want to answer your question, which is, um, I'm, I mean, I'm delighted that the kindness and compassion practices were helpful for you in your healing journey. And, um, and oftentimes people do discover that, oh, there's this self-hatred underlying things. And when they start to heal that, it can have an impact on external physical healing. But I, but what I caution is that, I don't, and I, you're not saying this, but I just want to say it, <laughs> that um, that some people then can use that to beat themselves up. Oh, if only I had been kinder to myself, then I might not have right. gotten sick. Mm-hmm. Something is maybe is wrong with me because I can't be kind enough, you know, so we never want to use it as like another excuse to to shame ourselves. Yes, exactly. Yes. So I just Thank need to, to flag that. that. Yeah. And yeah. also that it doesn't work for everybody, too. That's right. Absolutely. So in terms of practices for a more like external related compassion, I mean, there's, you know, I come out of the mindfulness tradition, which is rooted in the Buddhist tradition, and there's so many practices connected to compassion. And, um, and there's, there are practices that involve using words and phrases and intentions and, and that we can practice as a like a very um, specific meditation practice where we can sit down and do it or we can apply it on the spot. So I work with it. You know, it's interesting because it's like it's like we have to judge. Are we a person who tends to shut down to this stuff? Or are we a person? Some of us are the opposite, like we over empathize and then we actually might need a different practice. But so I can talk about that. But but if you're a person who tends to shut down, doing a compassion practice can be really helpful so like like you can you can pick up a newspaper and read something and notice what's happening in your body and notice your heart and notice if you're feeling like scared and bring some kindness to yourself and then offering out some compassion to whatever it is that you've just read about I do that like I'll put things on my I sit in front of like a little meditation altar and you know although I definitely tell people you absolutely don't need to have that to meditate. But sometimes I, I'll put objects from different countries. Like recently, I put something from Ukraine on my altar so that I would look at it and it would just give me a moment of connection. And then I would send words of may you be free from suffering. May there be peace. May there be reconciliation. And so sending these wishes and then noticing its impact in me on my heart what's happening am i feeling more open and expansive am i feeling shut down and scared and using my mindfulness practice to work with it if it's more of a shut down and scared thing so 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 that can be done like deliberately it can be done when you in the middle of reading the newspaper and you're not intending to meditate it can be done when you're walking down the street and that's what i try to like like when i see someone who's suffering like say there's a person who is homeless on the street and then i might send compassion out now where I get caught is I'm like, oh, great, is that compassion? That's just sending compassion, but they're still on the street, you know? And this is this is something because some of the teachers taught, some of my teachers talked about, well, it's interesting in the Thai language, the word for compassion, which is a Buddhist country, the word for compassion is a verb. It's not a noun. And Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master always said, compassion is a verb. So compassion doesn't just, so there's, there's a very important piece about opening the heart and doing that. And then it's like, then what, what happens next? And so 
and that's up for everybody. You know, that's that like, there's no rule around this. Okay. If you do 15 minutes of compassion practice, you then have to give this amount of money and go work in this soup kitchen and do it right. Like it doesn't work that way, but there's just a lot to contemplate and, and, and it really comes down to us and the transformation of heart. Like what happened, what happens to you as your heart changes? And you th- like, I think about people I've met who have really profoundly compassionate people and being in their presence is amazing, right? You feel it. There's something that's happening. Yeah. There's something. So I trust that there's something changing in us. And, um, but it's more mysterious than not, perhaps. Yeah. One of the practices that I started doing years ago was even when I hear an ambulance to send compassion to whoever might be in the ambulance or whatever might be going on of, you know, may you be healthy, may you be well, just sending good wishes. And I don't know if that does anything, but it does make me feel a sense of connectedness that I am in the same city, the same place as this person. I'm part of, part of this person's community. They're part of mine. Like the sense of, can we take care of all of each other? Can we work together? And so for me, it helps feel a deeper sense of connection to those around me instead of me putting on blinders and kind of being in my isolated world, kind of like the Truman Show of like, this is this world is just here for me type of a thing. But really like, wow, we're, we're all here together. And I think when I can have more of that open heart and sense of connection, I am a more generous, loving person. And, you know, that's what that's what the world needs. I feel like that's the greatest gift I could give the world. So it, it's always been a practice that I try to come back to even when I notice I'm feeling down. It's just like, okay, what else can I can I open my heart with? I think it's a fantastic practice. And I think if everybody was doing that practice, what kind of world would we be in? Yeah. And it, so it's, you know, there's a lot about inner transformation impacting outer transformation. And there's, it's not, it's not like a straight shot. (laughs) Like, every time I do this, this changes the world. It's not I mean, that's like magical thinking in my view, but it is impacting who we are, as you're describing as it is doing for yourself and that feeling of connect connectedness. And I'm also really interested, like, okay, everybody, (laughs) let's bring compassion to the world in a really big way. We need to do it now. I mean, there's never, in my mind, I don't remember living in such a hate-filled time as Mm -hmm. there is, is what's going on right now. I mean, it's just, it's out of control. It is out of control. And there are, you know, all these factors that we could point to. And people will say things like, well, the country's always been divided or you know, and there's always been horrible, horrible times throughout human history, <laughs> but somehow it just feels like, like this, like kind of dark energy over the country for the moment, you know, and, and it's that compassion has, has gotten so like, just, I don't know what the word is, but it's just, it's faint right now. So what can, what if there was a revolution in compassion? And, you know, I think about the work of Karen Armstrong, who really tried to create the compassion charter. I mean, she did create it, didn't try, and really emphasizing compassion. And there's this piece, I think, for those of us in the mindfulness world to 
teach the compassion in connecting it somehow to the outer world in bigger and bigger ways. And then the question that I didn't get, one of the things I didn't get to in my talk was I was going to bring up the concept of like all the hate that's going on right now. Like, how do you bring compassion not only to the haters, but how do you get the haters to stop hating? Yeah. Like who is, who's working on this? I want to know <laughs> as people listening to your podcast, if you know, how do you stop the people who are being hateful from hating? It's like a it's like a profound, I mean, I, I almost can cry as I think about this question right now, because it's like the level of just nastiness. It, yeah. it, it's like, it's untenable. And you, you read these stories about people who've been doxxed. And I'm very like a big supporter of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. And the, the I mean, like, there's all this stuff going on that's just beyond the pale how do we what is what's our personal responsibility but how can there be systemic change so this is unacceptable yeah. it should be unacceptable. i'm sorry i'm getting on like like a grand no get on it because the, I mean, the world needs it the, and we all need to hear it and i think it's a a practice that either people don't know they don't know you know i think it's a resource within us that sometimes it's really hard to find or tap into when they've never experienced it. And I'm curious, like, how do you even just model it for your your teenager? Mm -hmm. How can people bring it into their homes a little bit more or into their interactions or into their workspaces so that we can see this bigger ripple effect into our into our world? It's interesting with, uh, so my daughter is almost 13 and you know, it's that very delicate stage where they kind of listen to you, but kind of don't. And so you don't want to push too hard, right. but, but it's like, I'll do little things all the time. Like I might point out to her when her behavior isn't so compassionate. I'm like, really, why did you act in that way? Like we will discuss it because I think a lot of it right now is making it relatable to her. Like, okay, well, when you did that with your friend, was that the most compassionate response? And so just getting it in her consciousness and then on the larger level, it's more things that she can see. So like we were walking down the street and we have a lot of homeless people in LA. So that's probably why I'm talking about it a bit. But, um, but I noticed that we walked past someone, I could feel both of our bodies sort of tense up. And then I decided just to start chatting with this person. And we got in this really good conversation. My daughter was kind of standing there and she's watching me engage in a way that I hope was more compassionate. Um, so I try to model it and we try, I try to do things with her that, that help her feel like she has some agency. Like we did a lot of letter writing during election time and, you know, various, various things, working at soup kitchens. It's a big project. <laughs> it's a really big project. Yeah, I notice with even so I, in Seattle, and Seattle is known to be kind of a more introverted, colder, I say in connection wise, not temperature wise, mm -hmm. city. Uh, there's something called the Seattle freeze. Oh. And, um, <laughs> and so I have been, and my husband and I play this game where when we walk in our neighborhood or walk down the street, we say hello to everybody. And we kind of have this game of like, are they gonna say hello back? Because most people don't. But it's like, what is this energy that we wanna bring into our space, into our community, into our neighborhood? And hopefully that creates some sort of 
ripple. And I love that you model that for your daughter because I can see so many friends, you know, not having kids yet, but so many friends who do have kids, how kids are really paying attention to everything that you do and say. And, you know, I remember looking up to my mom that same way. That's how you learn how to navigate the world. So in a world that is very divided right now, where there is so much fear between people, and I don't even know where we are in this pandemic when <laughs> now that we're not wearing masks, or some people are wearing masks still, but it's not as <laughs> mandated, you know, like there's not that big of a division um, as there once was. How do we even just start to see each other as human, not as you're a Republican, you're a Democrat, you're a mask wearer, you're not, you're vaccinated, you're not, you know, how we just created so much divide. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm just thinking out loud with you as we're talking here, but I guess it's easier to hate than love. You know, it's easier to be separate than connected somehow. Kind of goes back to that negativity bias a little. Yes, bit. yes, yeah. it's great. Oh, right. So we're thinking about not only personally, but collectively. And it, it just, it's, it, 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 I guess maybe it has to do also with like human survival, right? Like how did the species survive? You're an enemy, you're a threat. And so perhaps, I mean, this is something I would have to do way more research into, but thinking about like, it, well, you know, so just pause for a moment. I read a study that was published fairly recently that said that babies are inherently altruistic. And they they did this thing with babies where they I guess they gave them some food and then they took and then and then they dropped the food and the idea was to get the baby to hand the food to the to the experimenter and the babies most of the time did and so the so even if they were really hungry the babies shared it like the, the I guess they it, the person who was you know handling them was like I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And the babies like gave it to them, even if they wanted it themselves. And so the conclusion from this study was like, there's some like inherent goodness in children, inherent altruism. Now, I don't remember like how methodologically like, you know, good that particular study was, but it's still interesting to think like, what is, is there an inherent goodness and what happens? I mean, obviously, we get educated around separateness and divisiveness, and that starts really, really early on. I mean, there, there's other research at looking at babies where babies will feel afraid of a person not of their same race. Right. Right. And so it's like, it's like, okay, so I don't know. I, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> I'm an educator. And I think about like, like what is inherent to us and what is um educated and what is obviously nature nurture these questions but is it easier to hate is that the default and if that's the case then we have to work extra hard to keep that altruism that we had of babies as babies alive you know and to build it and then and to like encourage i mean i feel like they used to do things like Good citizens awards, and that's a a mild response to a gigantic social crisis. But I believe that hate is being educated in within many communities. Hate and separation and divisiveness, and and this is obviously showing up in the massive racism and everything else we're struggling with in this country. Going back to what you shared in the beginning of just noticing what compassion feels like in our bodies can be a really helpful indicator 
of when can we tap back into that? So when you noticed your body tensed up when you were walking by somebody that discomfort or yeah, yeah, um, you know, it's like important to listen to those spidey senses that we all have and also not be reactive to it. And you chose compassion and engagement. And I notice I have to practice that when I'm walking around the streets of Seattle too, of whether it's a homeless population or mentally ill population. And as a female walking by myself and I don't feel as safe, you know, noticing what am I choosing? Am I choosing to live in the fear and in the stories or can there be a sense of openness as I'm still interacting and engaging with people? And of course, discerning, you know, what feels safe and what doesn't, but it's still a choice to engage our world with an open heart or closed. It is a practice to tap into that. Yeah. And you're someone who has years of a meditation practice. And so it takes time. It takes effort to become self-aware in that way, to notice when your body is tensing up, when you notice that you're having a reaction and not be lost in the reaction, but able to come back to center, right? Like these are skills that you've developed. So yes, we those are like absolutely key. And then there's this whole area of like implicit bias, right? Where we don't even know, you know, that's our blind spots, right? We don't even know that we're having a reaction because we, I mean, or, or we're having particular thoughts that might be racist or ageist or sexist or whatever. So, so there is some research, there's a lot more to be done around mindfulness, helping us become aware of implicit bias and actually make different choices. So there's a couple of really good studies on that, but there's much more to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the things that we're aware of, and then there's there's the things that we know, and then the things we don't know, and the things we don't know, we don't know. That's the problem. The ones we don't know, we don't know. We have a lot of work to do, I think. Is my yeah, problem. we have a lot of work to do, and yeah. how mindfulness can be a tool to help us understand ourselves and all of those layers and the continued learning because it's not a destination point we don't just learn ourselves; it's like a continued observing and learning and listening that's right absolutely thank you diana for being here and sharing your wisdom and your insights can you let our listeners know where they can find more about you and all of your teachings and your books and resources out there sure um so I am at the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center, and there's our, our website, uclahealth.org slash mark. And we ha- I also have an app, UCLA Mindful, which is a free educational tool. We have meditations in 14 different languages, as well as a lot in um, new ones every week. Um, I'm also at dianawinston.com and my books are available wherever you buy books. Amazing. Thank you so much. My pleasure. So much fun. Thanks so much for listening to the Center in the City podcast. I would love to hear what's awakening inside of you around the topic of compassion, self-compassion, and how you're currently practicing it, if you are in your life right now. So head on over to Instagram at OneWade and let's continue the discussion there. Thanks so much for being here. And until next time, stay centered.